Let's go on to Psalm 87 as we pray for service already. As Psalm 87 is a psalm of the songs of Korah, a song. And this psalm is a prophecy of the future kingdom when all the nations are going to come to Jerusalem. So we read uh, this psalm, the sons of Korah, that his foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. So Mount Zion, as we've already discussed, is another name as we go through the Psalms, particularly that makes reference to Jerusalem. So Mount Zion, speaking of where God's holy city is, that is the city of Jerusalem, keep in mind that God chose Jerusalem to be his city. He didn't choose Rome. He didn't choose Washington, D.C. He didn't choose Salt Lake City like some Mormons believe that Salt Lake has chosen. But he chose Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is uh, his holy city where the temple was, where the reign of Jesus will be from. And, and as the psalmist is saying, his foundation is in the holy mountains here. And his foundation being in the holy city, Jesus, of course, is going to come back. He's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. He's going to sit upon the throne of David. And that's what the uh, psalm uh, that we're going to read, if we get to it tonight, Psalm 89 is going to be speaking of, that God will keep his covenant that he made with David, that he will sit upon the throne of David, and that David's throne will be established forever. So the Lord coming back, and coming back to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, but I want us to apply this to our lives as we read that his foundation is in the holy mountains here. And as we look at that, we need to keep in mind that our foundation is him, is Jesus Christ. And it would be Jesus, as he was finishing up the Sermon on the Mount, he told us that we're to be like the wise one who heard the sayings of his. He just got through teaching. And ministering, and he said, you be the one that's wise, that hears the sayings of mine and does them, is like in the one who builds his house upon the rock, the solid foundation. And when the winds came and, and the rains beat against the house and the waters rose up, that house was able to stand in the storm. And so you and I, as we build upon the foundation, that is Jesus Christ, and the psalmist have been talking quite a bit about that, about that you are uh, my foundation, that you place me upon a solid rock. He's our place of solidity and safety and strength. It is found in Jesus Christ and knowing him and following after him. So he's going to come and rule and reign and glorious things spoken of you, O city of God. And in that pause, in verse 4, I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. And of Zion, it will be said, this one, and that one were born of her. And the Most High himself shall establish her. And the Lord will record when he registers the people, this one was born there. Shalah, or that pause meditation once again. So the psalmist is describing the Lord as a king, uh, describing a king taking a royal census. And what is remarkable here in this psalm is that he's mentioning Gentiles. I make mention of Rahab. It might be translated in your Bible, Egypt, and Babylon, and Philistia, and Tyre, and Ethiopia. This one that was born there. And we know that when the Lord comes and rules and reign, he's going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. We know that he's going to be ruling from Jerusalem, and the nations are going to come up to Jerusalem, as Zechariah chapter 14 tells us. 
and they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's going to be a joyous time. And then Zechariah 14 also declares that those nations that do not come up for that feast, that there's going to be judgment against them. So it's going to be an enforced righteousness as, again, that Messianic Psalm, Psalm chapter 2, that tells us that, that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And as he comes and establishes his kingdom, that the Gentiles are a part of that. And I just wonder, I just wonder what the Jews thought when they read this psalm here, speaking about the king making a royal census, that they belong to this holy city, that they're going to be a part of this, the the kingdom of God. And you see, that's kind of interesting to consider because it was the Jews that, at the time of Jesus, that they thought that salvation wasn't possible for the Gentiles. We know that the Old Testament prophets and the psalmists would write about how the Lord would, would rule over the Gentiles. The Gentiles would come to the Lord and, and that there's blessing. Matter of fact, it's interesting. You read, for example, Isaiah chapter 19. It talks about during that time that Egypt and Assyria uh, will worship the Lord. And we know that it's spoken that, that the Jews, God's chosen people, were to be a light to the Gentiles and that they are going to be a part of this salvation. But what happened is the Lord desired for them to be a light. You see, as God blessed them, brought them into the land, and, and they followed the Lord, and he, they would see those, those nations, how God provided for them and protected them and worked on their behalf and blessed them, that they would see that, that truly he is the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who, who brought you know, uh, his people out of Egypt by his mighty hand, and came into the promised land that truly that he is God. And that's what was the desire of the Lord, for them to be a light to the other nations, for them to realize that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel was the true, the only true God that there was. But what happened in their history, not only did they turn to other gods, but after the Babylonian captivity, when they came back, they turned inwardly, and they thought that the Gentiles were good for nothing but to fuel the fires of hell. And we know that was the attitude, and there's the ancient writings on that. But you remember that in Acts chapter 21, when Paul was arrested there in Jerusalem, as the city began to ride against Paul. And the reason was, is because they thought that Paul had taken Gentiles into the temple. That was forbidden. And so uh, the city, uh, all the men rushed towards uh, uh, the temple, and they took Paul, and they were going to kill him. But the Romans came down and took him into protective custody. And then Paul, was he's up on that catwalk on the Antonio Fortress, he asked the commander, can I address the, the mob? Can I address the people? And they said yes. And he began to give his testimony. And as he's given his testimony, how the Lord showed himself, you know, to uh, Paul and, and saved him and gave him that ministry. Paul said that I am to go to the Gentiles. And as soon as he said that word Gentile, you know, as you read in Acts chapter 22, that what happened, those, those Jews began to riot. They were throwing dust in the air. They were tearing their clothes. They said, away with this man. This man must die because that was the attitude that they had. And we know that when Peter initially went to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, 
as he saw that vision of all the unclean animals and as he was in Joppa and arise and, and eat Peter. And Peter said, God forbid, I've never eaten anything unclean. And the Lord said, don't call that which I have cleansed unclean. And so Peter began to understand as he would end up having these guys take him to the house of Cornelius in Caesarea, that Roman centurion. And Peter gave the gospel to, to, to Cornelius and his family and those who were gathered with him, the other Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were saved. And then in chapter 11 of Acts, the Jews began to scold Peter. You went and ate with a Gentile? And you see, they began to understand something. That this thing called the church was going to be made up of Jews and Gentiles. Slave and free. Uh, male and female that they were all coming to the commonwealth of God's house and be a part of this living temple. And that's why Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians that this holy temple, that, that you Gentiles, you have been uh, brought near by the blood of Jesus. You're no longer strangers and foreigners. So they needed to understand that God was going to bring salvation to the Gentiles. So I wonder what they thought when they read this. And we know that the Lord is going to rule and reign and that the Jew and the Gentile needs Jesus as their Lord and Savior for salvation. But then as we read in verse 7, both the singers and the players on instruments say, all my springs are in you. So Jerusalem, it's interesting. When you go to Jerusalem, it's nestled in some small hills. There's a Mount of Olives to the east and Mount Zion. And there's, you know, Mount Scopus to the south and Mount Moriah where the city is built. They cut into the mountain, but it's just a series of hills. It wasn't built in a, in a place where uh, most cities of fame were built along a river or near an ocean. And so Jerusalem there nestled there. And here, as, as we see both the singers and the players in verse 7 on instruments say, all my springs are in you. It's interesting that underneath even the Temple Mount, there's a lot of flowing water and it creates problems sometimes and it pushes out some of those ancient stones and they have to go in and fix it. And, and there's a lot of springs underneath the water. You know, one of the things that we know that when the Lord comes back, Zacharias says that when he touches down on the Mount of Olives, that the Mount of Olives is going to heave in half, is what the scripture tells us. It is also interesting, about 60 years ago, they found a fault that runs right through the middle of the Mount of Olives. And when it heaves in half, the topography is going to change. There's going to be all that underground water that's going to spring up. And you see the word spring here is not talking about a well. It's talking about running water. It's talking about living water, running water, flowing water. And then there's going to be a new river. As you go to Ezekiel's and you go to chapters 40 through 48, it talks about how there's going to be a river that's going to flow from Jerusalem. And it's going to go eastward to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead. That's why they call it, you know. It, it has a lot of minerals. It's heavy in salt. If you ever go to the Dead Sea, you can just plop down and you begin to float like a bobber. You know, you just kind of float around. You want to be careful if you've got any cuts or anything because it really stings. And the last time I was in there, I had a little cut on my toe. And I came running out there so fast because it hurt so bad. But it, it's interesting. You just kind of float around there in the Dead Sea. But there's nothing living in the Dead Sea. And, and the reason is, is because of the salts and the minerals. And there's no outlet of the Dead Sea. You see, the Jordan River flows out of the base of Mount Hermon up north. 
and it comes, and it's very beautiful. It's, it's forests, and it's, and it's, you know, streams. There's three headwaters, and you can go, and they got trout in there, and it's fascinating to watch. And you come, and it flows into the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee is beautiful. It sits in a bowl, and, and it's about 800 feet below sea level, and it's got fish in it, and it's, you know, the landscape hasn't changed much in 2,000 years, and and there, you can see the fishing boats going out there, and very lush and green. And the Jordan River flows out of the Sea of Galilee. So there's an inlet, there's an outlet, and it goes through the Jordan Valley, and then it goes to the Dead Sea, and there is no outlet. And we know that when the Lord comes back with that river flowing in, that men are going to be fishing out of the Dead Sea. It's going to be full of fish. And it's going to change the topography, and then part of the river is going to flow westward towards the Mediterranean Sea. I think there's an important lesson in that. And we've talked about already in the Psalms that, and it talks about water, how Jesus, that it was there in Jerusalem that he said, if you thirst, come to me and drink, and out of your innermost will flow torrents of living water. Listen, as we take in, as we go to him, to, to, as we thirst for him and, and take in of him, of course, he was speaking of the Holy Spirit, as we're just allowing the Lord to fill us, then it is the overflow from us. We don't want to get stagnant. It's like the Sea of Galilee that has the Jordan River comes flowing into it and is teeming with life, and the water flows out. There's an outlet. But the Dead Sea, that there isn't, and there's, it's stagnant. And one way to be stagnant in your walk with the Lord is that you're just taken in and you're taken in, but you're not giving out. You're not giving out and serving others or ministering to others, or giving truth to others. And we want to be ones that as we're taken in, we want to be flowing out torrents of living water from us that we have to give to people who are thirsty. So don't become stagnant. And so here, the, the waters, the springs that will come up, and the topography that's going to change, and that's Psalm 87. And now Psalm 88, we see it's a psalm, the sons of Kord to the chief musicians, set to Mahalath and the contemplation of Heman the Ezraite. This psalm is, is, is a psalm, a, a sad melody. It's literally uh, sickness for singing. Uh, this is the last of the sons of Kord that we're going to see in the psalms. It's a very sobering psalm. Uh, it speaks of darkness. It speaks of of suffering intensely, it speaks of death, it speaks of, of drowning, of great discouragement. This psalm starts as a bummer, and it ends as a bummer. It is the only psalm that we've seen so far that it does that, because a lot of psalms will start out with a bummer, but there's some kind of breakthrough, isn't there? The psalmist breaks through, and in this psalm, there isn't any of that. So it kind of begins, you know, with the psalmist being in a funk, and it, he ends in a funk, but I think we can learn very much. I think there's four things that definitely that we can get from this psalm in that season that perhaps that we find ourselves in difficulties or in that time of darkness or that time of suffering and sadness. I think this psalm can speak to us. Because what I've heard a lot about this psalm is, is that those who teach through it, they will just kind of ignore it. It's not a very uplifting psalm, but I, I think it is worth looking at 
as we read that in verse 1, O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you, and let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. So as we look at this psalm, the first thing that we can learn in a time of darkness and, and, and suffering and difficulty is, number one, cry out to the Lord. And it should bring us comfort that our prayers come before God and he inclines his ear to us. You know, I think a good uh, illustration of that that we can kind of understand, uh, particularly you who have had kids or if you now have small kids, if you have a baby, if your baby cries, your ear is inclined to it, isn't it? Your ear is inclined to that baby. Some other baby may cry and you hear it, but when your baby cries, you know that cry, don't you? And even our children, as they get older, as you hear them and, and your ear is inclined to them because you're so close to them and you love them and you hear them. And that's the way it is with our loving Father, that His ear is inclined to you in your time of darkness, in your time of sadness. Know that you're His child and He's listening to you. And that should bring us some comfort. So as the psalmist is crying out to the Lord, and then second of all, in verses 3 through 9, we can be honest before the Lord. We read, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near of the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You have afflicted me with all your waves. And then the pause, the meditation. In verse 8, you have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. My eyes waste away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. You can be honest before the Lord. As the psalmist here feels forsaken and, and is a cause of, of, of troubles. And, and it reminds me of Job as he's crying out. As, as he's saying, I'm in the lowest part of the depths. Your wrath lies heavy on me. You have afflicted me with all your waves. Verse 7. Job felt that way, didn't he? As we went through the book of Job, he felt like the Lord was against him. And oftentimes in our darkness and in our sadness and in our difficulties, we can feel this way, can't we? We can feel like, Lord, you're against me. Lord, you're afflicting me. And I want you to know that the Lord, whatever he does in your life and allows in his life, it filters through his hand of love. And you see, Job thought God was against him. He never denied the greatness of God, but he always forgot about the goodness of God. And the Lord desires to work in the darkness and the difficulties, to bring you comfort and to see you through and to grow you and to strengthen you. And you can be honest to the Lord. You can tell Him how you feel because He knows anyway, doesn't He? But He desires for you to continue to cry out to Him, be honest before Him. But then we see that the psalmist here in verses 10 through 12 keeps desiring to see the faithfulness of the Lord. We read in verse 10, Did you, Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in a land of forgetfulness? So we know that there is a desire to see the faithfulness of God and know this, that God will be faithful. 
If we get to the next psalm a little bit in Psalm 89, it's a psalm about the faithfulness of God, how God keeps his promises. And you will, as you keep looking to him, crying out to him, as you are honest before him and honesty of your heart. Remember that it was that man that as Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and there was a man there uh, that was, Luke's gospel records it, had a young man, uh, a son that was throwing himself in the fire. He was demon-possessed. And the other disciples, he had three of them, Peter, James, and John up there on the mountain with him. But the other, you know, nine were down below and they're trying to cast out this demon now, this kid, and they can't do it. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus comes down, and the father makes a beeline right to Jesus and said, can you help me? And Jesus rebuked the disciples. Remember that? And it was Jesus that came to the father and said, can you believe, do you believe that I can help you? And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And you see, that's all Jesus was looking for, in the honesty of his heart, to say, you know what, I believe, but there's some unbelief there, and there's some struggle there that I have. And Jesus would take that, and he would work through that, and he would heal that boy and cast that demon out. And you see, he desires, even in our weaknesses and our frailties and our shortcomings, and when we go to him and say, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief that he doesn't forsake us, that he will continue to be faithful to us. So crying out to the Lord, number one. Second of all, being honest before the Lord. Thirdly, keep desiring to see the faithfulness of the Lord. And then fourthly, in verses 13 through 18, keep praying before the Lord. We read, but you, to you I have cried out, O Lord. And in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? And why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. Keep praying to the Lord. As even as the psalmist here ends in a very heavy and somber kind of way, you keep praying, you keep turning to the Lord, you keep looking to Him. You know what's interesting about this psalm? I kind of found a commentary that there's a few commentators and scholars and rabbinical scholars even that suggest here that this is speaking of Ethan, of course, in his time, the rabbinical scholars of Solomon's reign when it was a very difficult time when Egypt came in and attacked. But also, there's others, Christian Bible interpreters, and they have looked at this, and some have suggested that perhaps this is messianic. And you say, how is it messianic? What is interesting here is that they suggest that perhaps it's speaking of the time when Jesus, after his trial with the Sanhedrin, that before he went to Pilate, that is, as he was in a holding cell, that this is what he was praying and the things that he was thinking. You remember how they bound Jesus up there in the garden? And they took him to Caiaphas' house, 
to stand before the, the Sanhedrin. He would first stand before Annas, who was the power behind the high priestly office. But then he was then taken to Caiaphas to stand before the Jewish Supreme Court. It was after dark. It shows the illegality of the trial. There was to be no trials after sunset. But here it is. It's dark. Jesus is bound up. They bring in false witnesses. You know the, the gospel narratives, how it tells us that they uh, wrongly accused him and falsely witnessed against him, and, and, and they condemned him to death. And they put a bag over his head, and they begin to punch him. And that's where the sufferings really begin to intensify with Jesus. They would beat him. And, you know, you put a bag over somebody, they can't see the punches going. They can't go with the flow. And so they beat him and mocked him. And then you remember that it was Jesus, as they brought him out, the doors of Caiaphas uh, opened up and they got Jesus. And then he turns and he's hearing Peter swearing and cursing there in the courtyard, just as Jesus said would happen. Peter, who tried to be so brave that night and said, Lord, I won't deny you. I'll stand by you. I'll be faithful to you. Oh, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And as the doors opened up and there was the sound of the rooster and Peter is cursing and swearing to a little girl, I don't know him. And denied him for the third time. It says that Jesus looked at Peter and it says that Peter wept bitterly. And he went away, and I'm sure Peter at that point thought that he had sinned away the day of grace, that he had severed his friendship and relationship and closeness with Jesus forever. But we know that Jesus would come to him in John chapter 21 and restore Peter. You know, there's a very special place um, in Jerusalem that not very many people go to, but I've been to it. And it's where the excavation, where Caiaphas' palace was, where his house was. There's no doubt about it. It's not debated. And I'd love to go there because it's quiet and, and groups don't really go there. And, and you can go in there, and they've actually excavated the original steps 2,000 years ago, no doubt about it, where Jesus would walk up those steps into the house of Caiaphas. And I love sitting on those steps. I love sitting on those steps and thinking what it was like that night when they come and they, they got Jesus all bound up and all those soldiers and all the people and, and all that was taking place. And there's Peter warming himself at the fires and he's saying, I don't know him. I, I don't know what you're talking about and denying him. And he's being beaten inside and he's black and he's blue and he's bleeding. And he comes out and he sees Peter doing all that. Well, here it is the middle of the night. You know, the next morning that they go to Pilate. They can't go to Pilate in the middle of the night. So what did they do with Jesus? It's interesting that they just found not too long ago that underneath Caiaphas' house that there was a pit. They thought first it was a cistern where they stored water, but they said, no, it's not that. Then they thought, well, it's a place where they stored wine and Perhaps some food in case of emergency. No, it wasn't that. They concluded it was a prison cell, a holding pit. And the reason that they did is because of the markings on the wall of the chains and the ropes that they would lower somebody in. They made steps to go into it now. It's very fascinating. You can go in there. It's not very big, but you can take a group of about 40, maybe 50 people in there and crammed in there and you can see it. But what is also very fascinating that in the lights as you go down and you look, 
for some reason, they can't explain it, there's almost like a burnt um, image that's on the wall there. They can't explain it. I've seen it. It's very, very clear. And as you look at it, they just come to the conclusion, geologists, that's the natural, you know, uh, color of the rock, kind of like it almost looks like an edged-in burnt spot or something, but it's the image, the silhouette of a man that's leaning over and he's praying. Absolutely fascinating. So as they took him out of Caiaphas' house, he had a couple hours there before they would then take him out of that pit. And that's where they believed Jesus was for those hours, praying to the Father. And could it be Psalm 88 is what Jesus was thinking, what he was praying in his very dark hour at that time. I'm counted with those who go down to the pit, verse 4. I'm like a man who has no strength. He talks about my soul is full of trouble. My life draws near to the grave. And these are the things perhaps as he's saying. He knew that the time when sinful humanity, all the sins of, of man was going to be placed on him on that cross and he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he's there in that agony, in that dark place. Don't know for sure, but I do know this for sure. For you that may be here tonight, that you're in a pit and you're in a very dark place and you're in a place of deep sadness or sorrow or or difficulty, Jesus can relate to you. Because he was in that place. He was in that place of darkness, of that dark pit, of that sorrow, and he did it for you so that you can have hope. And he knows how you feel. He knows what you're going through. Because he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as Isaiah says. And he wants you to know that he's going to be faithful to you. And that he loves you. And he knows what you're going through. He can relate to you. You may feel like no one else does. No one else knows what I'm going through. The, the, the hurt in my heart, the sadness in my heart, the, the darkness that I'm feeling in my life or I'm in in my life. But Jesus does. Because he was dropped down in that pit in a dark hour of his life. But you see, the next day he would be crucified, he would die, and then he would burst forth with life and light. And that first Easter morning, that first day of the week, when he rose from the grave, listen, we have hope. You have hope today. And somehow, some way, in the darkness that you're in, light is going to come forth. And you may not feel like it right now. You may not see it. But he loves you. He loves you. And he's going to work somehow. And he's going to see you through. To where new life is going to come forth in light. Because he is faithful. He is faithful to you. Psalm 89. Contemplating that Ethan, the Ezraite. I will sing of the mercy of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. 
good place to end tonight's service. Those of us who are a little older, you know, remember that old contemporary song? Some of you might remember it. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing of the mercy of the Lord. And with my mouth will I make known your faithfulness, your faithfulness. And with your, my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. He's going to be faithful. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word given to us, and even in the midst of difficult words to read, that you are faithful. We know that. And you bring comfort. And you bring hope. And you bring light. And Father, I just want to pray for anyone that's here tonight that perhaps is going through sadness or difficulties. Maybe because of the holidays or lost one or situations and circumstances that they face. That you would just bring comfort, strength, and help. We thank you for tonight and for your word given to us. And Lord, I do pray at this season of Thanksgiving that we would realize we always have something to be thankful for. And that is we have you. We are forgiven. You are dropped into that deep, dark pit. And the sorrow and the heaviness and the sufferings that you went through, you did it for us. You took all the sins of humanity upon yourself and took the wrath that we deserved upon yourself on that cross. And then you cried out, it is finished. They put our Lord in a grave and he rose from the grave and you're alive. And I know that you're speaking to every heart here that there is hope and light. My faithfulness will see you through. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone that's listening on live stream or in this building that perhaps you never truly have given your life to Jesus. I want to give you that invitation that Jesus did die for you because of his love for you. He died for your sins. And you can know that you have forgiveness of sin as you turn to him your Savior, your Lord, as you cry out to Him, realizing your need for Him to be forgiven. As you ask Him into your life, into your heart, to have a personal relationship with Him. You see, your sin has separated you from God, but Jesus came to be the mediator, the propitiation, the satisfaction, the atonement for your sin so now that you can have forgiveness and the hope of heaven and right relationship with the Father. It only comes through Jesus. Cry out to him that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life is the promise of God's word. So if that does mean anything to anyone who's listening to this message, will you cry out to the Lord? And will you pray that Jesus, I come to you 
confessing that I am a sinner, in need of you, the Savior of the world. I believe you died for me on Calvary's cross. You rose again. You're alive. You're speaking to my heart. And I now just ask you to be my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me. And help me, Lord, to live for you. And thank you for your forgiveness and making all things new. And if you prayed that prayer, I want you to come up and see me as we conclude the service here. But for all of us, may we leave here going home safely, being blessed. Bless everyone here tomorrow and the next day. Help us to be a light. And Lord, I pray that as you bring us back again on Sunday, that it would be great joy in our hearts. So Lord, I thank you for this time and this night. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said.